live from Gotham City, it's the Dockiverse Podcast, episode 26, The Fish Hour. On this episode, we have another monster movie review, we've got Doclopedia stuff, we have our first patron request, and we have commentary. Now, let's get... Wait a minute. Is that a bat? Hello there, everybody. Welcome back to another Monday episode of the podcast. I hope you all had a good weekend. Mine was not too bad, except that, once again, my D&D and pizza group did not get to play Firefly this weekend because... Once again, we had another cancellation due to scheduling. This is a very common thing nowadays with most gaming groups, and this is like the third time in a row it's happened to us. So I will be starting up my game again in early October, and that means that uh, Kathy, who's running the Firefly game, probably only has about another three sessions to go. And I hope we get to play them. I really like playing Firefly. Anyway, as I said in the introduction, we have an extra bit of stuff in this podcast because we got a patron request. My patrons, the more money they pay per month, the more they can ask for and receive. And it happens that Avis Crane, who pays every month and has for quite some time, requested that I cover a prompt from the RPG a day thing that I did uh, couple episodes ago and she wants to know more about the term flavor and what i have to say about it so we'll be doing that right after the doclopedia and before the commentary which i hope won't be too long now we move on to thanking the patrons which i do every episode thank you david thank you avis thank you bruce thank you jame thank you marion and thank you mark Once again, I don't know what I'd do without you. Now, time for the monster movie review. And this one is actually a pretty good movie, despite the fact that it got its budget cut and, uh, it's you know, it's old. But it has uh, a very good science fiction flavor. It has some kind of modernish viewpoints. And the movie I'm talking about is Kronos. And Kronos is a 1957 American black-and-white science fiction film, which came from Regal Films, which was a division of 20th Century Fox. It was produced by Irving Bloch, Louis DeWitt, and Kurt Newman. And it was directed by Kurt Newman. It stars Jeff Morrow as Dr. Leslie Gaskell, Barbara Lawrence as Vera Hunter, George O'Hanlon, who, by the way, was the voice of George Jetson, in the cartoons, and he did a lot of other voiceover work. And he plays Dr. Arnold Culver, and John Emery as Dr. Hubble, with also Morris Ankrum in there playing Dr. Albert Stern. As was common in the 50s and even into the 60s, this movie was made to be shown as a double feature with the movie She-Devil, which I may get around to doing someday when I do monster movies about women who will kill you it's uh, since its release, especially in later days, 
it's been praised as being above average in its storyline and kind of far-sighted uh, in its portrayal of the consequences of overconsumption of natural and man-made resources. So it's got kind of a cult status. Now, the plot of the movie, and I remember this vividly when I was a little kid and I saw it on TV and I didn't understand any of it and it kind of weirded me out at first. A huge blinking flying object deep in space emits a glowing ball of energy, which races to Earth, and it intercepts a man who is driving his pickup along an isolated road in the American Southwest, because all sorts of things happen in the American Southwest in these sort of movies. And the electrical entity takes over the man's mind and directs him to Lab Central, a U.S. research facility where a couple of scientists have been tracking the flying object and thinking it's an asteroid. Ha ha, those fools. Anyway, the possessed man knocks out the security guard, goes into the main building, where the entity leaves him and enters the mind of Dr. Hubble Elliott, the chief of Lab Central. And meanwhile, in a research lab below the area where the main guy is getting taken over by an alien, a couple of the other scientists realize that uh, this thing that's not an asteroid and it's coming to Earth. A lot of stuff happens, and Dr. Hubble being possessed by an alien, that causes a lot of problems. But mostly, what happens is a UFO crashes into the ocean, and then ashore comes this big robot. And it's a weird-looking robot. You'll see it in the uh, movie. It, it's done with animation, mostly. And it comes along, walking on its four weird legs, and it's sucking the power out of power sources and out of the Earth itself. And it gets bigger the more power it absorbs. So, causing all sorts of problems. Got a possessed guy dealing with it. And, of course, our heroes have to save the world. Now, the reason I put this movie on this list is because up till then, I had never seen anything like it, and I don't think anybody else had either. There were robots on a rampage periodically, and that goes all the way back to the silent area. But this was a giant robot, uh, a virtual robot kaiju, if you will, and it was just a more intelligent story. It was a more science fiction-y science fiction story than you usually see. And it was a good movie, and I have only seen it a couple of times since then. I'm not sure if it's on uh, YouTube, but I should check, because so far I think every other movie I've talked about is on YouTube, including the last one, Sound of Horror. It's a really good movie, and if you get a chance to see it, uh, they may well have it on Netflix. If you get Netflix DVDs, which probably nobody does anymore, but that's a way you can see it, I highly recommend you check out Kronos. All right, gentle listeners, we've got to charge right along because I'm already up to about almost eight minutes of talking here and we've got a lot more stuff to say and I need to try and keep the podcast shorter than that last one. This is the five-room dungeon and it's, of course, not a dungeon again. This is the road to nowhere. Now, it's not really a road to nowhere. It is a dead-end road and it's been a long time since anybody's gone back there, and you can have somebody hire your party, or you can just have them get curious about it, but uh, this road goes off miles back into the wilderness, and the first room they come to is, of course, not a room. It's just a small clearing. The road is narrow. It's overgrown. Nobody's gone up it probably in 100 years at least. 
and it goes to a very dense forest, at least at first. So the characters will ride up a main road, and they'll come to this road, and there's a sign somebody put up there as a joke or something that says Road to Nowhere. And you can tell nobody's probably gone up there in a long, long time. So they will turn up this road. They'll go about a mile up, and that's when they come to the first room, which, as we remember, is the entrance or guardian room. Usually it's the entrance and a guardian, and that's what it is here. Going through the forest is a non-starter because it's full of all sorts of creepy things. It's very dense forest, but that won't stop your players from trying, so throw a bunch of wolves and things at them until they get back on the road. The guardians are actually two ogre brothers and their pet dire wolf. And they made their home here on this road because it's one of the few clear spots in the forest. So on one side of the road, they've got a stinking, nasty lean-to that they've built out of small trees and stuff. On the other side of the road, they've got their cooking fire. And as your characters come over a small hill, looky-looky, there's two ogres and a wolf. Whether they fight them, whether they trick them, whatever they do, uh, if they go into that stinking, filthy hut, they will find a small amount of treasure, and that's about it. And, like I said, pretty simple. Entrance, guardian, do whatever. Now, you may have noticed that I did not start with the area around it, the sixth room of a five-room dungeon, like I did with the last one. And that's really because this forest and what I described along the road is part of the area. So it's too intermingled to really have it be a separate discussion. Next time, we'll do the second room. Now it's time for the Doclopedia, where our theme is 10 things you didn't know about. And this time it's 10 things you did not know about magical girls. Number one, all magical girls are cute, even the naughty ones. Number two, their familiars can be anything from cats to rabbits to talking dolls to ambulatory shrubs. Number three, magical girls always dress in the same three color combination, with each magical girl having different color combos. Number four, magical girls just love cookies and cute boys. Number five, unless they are really, really naughty, magical girls hate evil things. Number six, all magical girls wield very powerful magical weapons, but, number seven, not all of them have great control of it. Number eight, magical girls sometimes become dangerously nervous in the presence of really cute boys. Number nine, every magical girl has a distinct weakness. And finally, number ten, magical girls usually do not get along well with science girls. 10 Things You Didn't Know About the Towers of Mars The tallest rises up 10 kilometers. The shortest rises up 7.5 kilometers. There are 30 of them, equally spaced around the Martian equator. The Chinese exploratory mission got halfway up the shortest tower before contact was lost with them. They've never been found. Every 21 days, all of the towers emit a short burst of static electricity. Although they are made of the same white material, each one is covered in a different design. Of the five missions to explore the towers, only the second U.S.-Canadian team got back alive. All of the rest were lost without recovery. Once a year, 
all the towers hum for a full three hours. No measurable effect has ever been found during or after the humming. The only example of life on Mars, the black grass ecosystem, is found circling the base of each tower out about 900 meters. And finally, it has been found that the towers extend to at least three kilometers below the Martian surface. Well, gentle listeners, here is where we do something brand new, and it's a patron request. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, it's from Avis Crane, and she liked listening to the various uh, prompts for the 2021 RPG A Day, and she wanted to know more about flavor. So flavor is a little bit difficult to explain because it's not genre at all. And it's not really style. I mean, all GMs have a style of doing things. Uh, You have the GMs who prepare things and the GMs who run uh, total sandboxes. And you have the GMs who always run horror or the GMs who, you know, go back and forth between steampunk and fantasy and stuff like that. All GMs, all people really have their own sort of style. But flavor is not style, although in some ways it is close because, again, every person who plays, not just the GM, the players too, brings a little flavor to it. Now, I would say one of my personal flavors that I put into my games is probably the complete unpreparedness of it (laughs) because I really do run a sandbox game and I really do not prepare much. I have a, a basic idea I have a basic overarching story that eventually will get told, but I don't know if it'll take 10 sessions or 100. The other flavor I might have depends on the genre I'm running. Uh, Very often in pulp games, there will be dinosaurs. Sometimes there will be mad scientists, and uh, they will have not quite textbook weapons, I mean, they're not quite the weapons that you would find in a pulp story. I guess I also have a flavor of injecting some humor into things. I don't set out to make things a humor game like I would with Paranoia or Toon or something like that. But I do put in some humor. Voices. I do lots of voices. That's part of the flavor I put in a game. I know people who cannot do voices. And so they don't ever do them in a game. They will explain, oh yeah, this guy speaks with a West Texas voice, but they don't try and do a West Texas voice. Or they'll say, yeah, she's from England, but they don't say what part of England and they don't try to do, I don't know, a Cockney accent or a a more upper class accent or maybe even a Borders accent, something like that. I know people who do a lot of description. They're almost... Tolkien-esque in the amount of description they do of when you come into a building or when you go over a hill and you see a valley. And I know people who do very little description. I sort of do a medium amount of description. I'll tell you things like, yeah, there are mountains in the distance. They're really high. And, you know, you can see a river and it looks like there's little houses along it. But I don't go into the, you know, and you can smell the oleanders or whatever. No, I don't do that. Another bit of flavor that you'll find some people doing in games is the amount of violence they add and how that violence is portrayed. I know people who portray violence pretty detailed. 
You know, it's not just the bullet hits you, it's the bullet goes into the flesh of your upper arm and it rips a big chunk out on the way out. I don't really do that. I will describe that a wound is painful. I will describe what the wound is. Like, ah, yeah, you get a great big slash down your leg from that sword. But I don't go into, yeah, you're going to have nerve damage and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's probably one of the main sorts of flavor is, and it's like flavor text in in an adventure or, or a rule book or something. Well, people do flavor text too. Our GMs do it. Uh, certainly players do it when they're describing their character's background in great detail or describing what they do. I mean, there are plenty of players who just say, I hit him with my sword. And that's okay, I guess. But then there are players who, you know, I leap up on the table and I kick him in the face and then I stab at him with my sword. That sort of thing, which is better. But sometimes there are a few players who get carried away with that. So flavor in in role-playing games very often boils down to descriptions and, you know, the intensity or the detail of those descriptions. As far as individual people's flavor, uh, that often comes out as style. Uh, I have a style of GMing. It's fast and loose, and I pull a lot of things out of my ass. I have very dear friends who plan out their adventures and run them, and they come right up to the edge of railroading. I have other friends who sort of are a mix of the two. You know, it's all loosey-goosey until you get to one of the places that you should be for the general storyline. And then they get a little more detailed, and then they get a little more oriented towards getting you to do what the hell you're supposed to do, which, let's face it, is a full-time job for all of us GMs. Players, you know, it's, it's how they play, it's what they play, that's their style, but it also has some flavor. Uh, I know people who play mages a lot in D&D, maybe 90% of the time, and they have playing a mage down, and they add a lot of flavor to it. But if they have to play a fighter, not so much. They're not used to it, they're out of their comfort zone, and they just don't do it very well. I don't know what else to say about flavor, but everybody's got it, and if you try to develop it, you're really probably not going to. Flavor is just something that happens. How you do things, it's how you see things, it's how you describe things, it's how you think about things. That's your flavor. And Avis, I hope that satisfied you. And for anybody else that's listening who actually pays money into Patreon, um, I want to remind you that People who pay through Patreon will get deep, deep consideration for whatever they ask me to do. And people who listen for free on Anchor, yeah, you know, if you request something and it's really interesting, I'll do it. Okay, this commentary is titled Dundracon 2022 and Me. I've been going to Dundracon for a long, long time. About 35 years now. And I, of course, did not go last year. Nobody went last year. They didn't have one, along with most other cons in the country. So I hope it happens this February 2022. I really do. It's been two years since I've been to a Dundercon. Well, it will be two years by by then. And I really, really want to go back. Because there are people I only see once a year. There are people, it's like family. I've been there so much, so often. 
I really want to go there. They are having the con at a new location. It was supposed to be there last year, first time last year, but that didn't happen. So it's at a new location. Now, I've been to this location for a couple of other cons, most notably Pacific Con in 2015. And it's a much larger, much nicer hotel, way, way, way more parking, which was a big problem with the other hotel. You know, there's places to eat nearby, so it's not bad. And really looking forward to it. There'll be more rooms for games, more rooms for more room for dealers, more room for people, and more room for guests, you know, people who come to the con. Although I think the hotel is filling up awfully fast. And what I know I'll do at the con is my annual Friday Night Tune game, which I've been doing for uh, 33, 34 years. I've lost track. I will also probably be part of the city building seminar, which I have been part of for the last like three or four years. Then there's what I might do. And I am thinking about running maybe a couple of other games, not necessarily as official games, because there are going to be a lot of people running games after all this time of no con. But I have an idea for a rousing steampunk game, and I have an idea for possibly a, dare I say it, romantic sort of adventure game. So we'll see what happens. Also, just so you all know, I will be doing special Dundercon podcasts and vidcasts. Now, I've been doing little videos. I post them on Facebook. Uh, I've been doing that for years. But this time, I will actually be doing a podcast, at least one, maybe two, during the course of the four days of the con. And I will be doing at least a couple of you know, vidcasts that last more than five or six minutes. So there's something for you to look forward to in February. And that's the commentary for now. I want to thank everybody for listening today. And if you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook, where I'm Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Dockiverse blog, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com, or if you're listening via Anchor, you can leave a voicemail. If you'd like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts two weeks before they go up on Anchor, and hear many podcasts and download some PDFs, go to www.patreon.com.cross. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast or advertise on it, get in touch with me by any of the methods I just mentioned. Our music for almost the last time was Big Sandy and his Fly Right Boys playing an unnamed instrumental, which came off of the Free Music Archives. And of course, as always, everything on this podcast, except the music, is copyright 2021 by Doc Cross.